Over the last five years, web development has matured considerably. React has become a standard for front-end component development. GraphQL has seen massive growth in adoption as a data-fetching middleware layer. The hosting platforms have expanded beyond AWS and Heroku to newer environments like Netlify and Versal. These changes are collectively known as the Jamstack. With the changes brought by the Jamstack, it raises the question, how should an app be built today? Can a framework offer guidance for how the different layers of a Jamstack application should fit together? Redwood JS is one such framework for building Jamstack applications. We've done previous shows on Gatsby and Next.js. Redwood JS is another framework that is approaching this problem. Tom Preston Warner is one of the creators of Redwood JS. He's also the founder of GitHub and Chatterbug, which is a language learning app that he's currently working on. So Tom is a prolific person in the world of software engineering. He joins the show to talk about the future of Jamstack development and his goals for Redwood JS. If you have an idea for an episode, whether it's about a company or a project you're working on, we would love to hear more about what you're building or what company you're working at. You can go to softwaredaily.com and submit a topic. We're always looking for good ideas. And you can also support the show by becoming a subscriber, and you can get ad-free episodes by doing that. Go to softwaredaily.com for all that information, and thanks for listening. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. React and GraphQL have been prominent for about five years, and I think of these two technologies as being transformative and having a kind of leaving a big mark on web development. How has web development changed since the release of those core Facebook technologies? I think React has finally brought a type of development to web developers that we've been seeking for a long time and never realized we wanted. And this is something that I started seeing years ago in my GitHub days. I remember sitting down and seeing this templating system from Google. And I think it was called C template or something like that. And what it offered was logicless templates that would allow you to separate your views from your backend and develop them in isolation. This is something, one tiny piece. This is just a for instance, one tiny piece that React makes available to you that's part of this bigger story of easing front-end development. And then combine that with a way to connect your front-end and your back-end with GraphQL and make that just the way that clients talk to a server. It's just a beautiful arrangement. And so I see this now with mobile apps. Everyone wants to use GraphQL because it's so natural. And if you pair that with something like React Native, then you're getting kind of the best of both worlds. And React Native is getting better and better every day. And we're finally just, I don't know, I just, it's developer experience. There's this new term that I see everywhere now, and I don't know why it didn't exist before, but it's the way that I've always thought. And it's the way that I think a lot of developers think about how they work, and that's developer experience. What are the other important web technologies that have come out in addition to that Facebook set of front-end tools? Well, it's about CSS. CSS has improved radically over the last 10 years. We can do things now that we couldn't do before. We can rely on browsers. I mean, even just the browsers alone 
have improved so much and have a much better level of standardization across them that we can get more done faster. We spend less time looking up how to make our alignments work in every different browser. They just work now much better, not all the time, but so much better. So I'd say the browser is one of the biggest things and it's nothing new. It's just standards. And explain how these different web technologies fit together. What has this resulted in? What's the overall experience of a web developer today? Well, it's, I think once you pick up the pieces, once you learn the pieces, which admittedly is not the simplest thing in the world, but you think about any discipline that requires complexity, you're going to have to learn your tools. And that's no different in the space of web development. But once you learn those tools, the power that you have and the rate that you can develop applications becomes, I think, better than it's ever been. And people still lament how complicated it is, but it's because we have a complicated world. And the things that people do now with the web and their phones and their computers and how distributed we are and that you need fast internet for a lot of things, this is just how we interact with the world. And so the sites that we build today are inherently more complex than they used to be. So the experience is, I think, daunting at first, but the tools that are available now are so much more powerful than they used to be. And anything that you can dream up in your mind, you can do. And you can do it at a reasonable cost with a small number of people. And that definitely wasn't the case even a decade ago. So the idea of a full stack framework around the modern web technologies has been percolating for a while. Uh, there have been a few attempts, things like Meteor. More recently, you have Next.js. Why hasn't there been a dominant Ruby on Rails-style experience for the modern web ecosystem? I think it's been brewing for a while. But I think the real reason is that we've been in this sort of Cambrian explosion of possibility in the JavaScript and TypeScript world for many years, which is really healthy. You see this with any new technology. As it becomes popular, as people start realizing what they can do with it, then you get people building all kinds of building blocks and everything becomes separated out. Everything is de-integrated. And that's great for experimentation. Everyone's trying everything. But there comes a point where people start to fatigue on everything that's new. You start to get different elements that have matured and can now be relied on. And I think just now, in the last year or so, you start seeing a lot of the building blocks having reached a level of sophistication that many people are choosing them, and yet integration becomes the hard part. So you can pick React, and you can pick GraphQL, and you can pick something like Next, JS, you can pick styled components and storybook and all of these different things. And you can sit down and say, well, I can build a really awesome site out of this stuff. It's really great. But then you need to integrate them all yourself. And I think people started feeling this a year ago. I felt it a year ago. And that's about when we started working on Redwood JS. And it was specifically because you saw all these patterns out there. But there was no standardization. There was no full stack opinionated framework that you could use to bypass all of these decisions. And so speaking again to new developers that want to come in and learn these things, coming into front end development and JavaScript 
and saying, okay, I'm ready to build a site. What do I do? And then seeing the list of things that you have to do, that's hard. That's super hard. And something like Rails did a great job in the world of web development 15 years ago saying, hey, beginner, come in here and just get started on your business logic. Just build out your database, get your business logic, make your views, and you've got a website. And it's legit, and it takes care of SQL injection for you, attacks, and, and it was beautiful. You could go farther faster. And so the same thing I think is happening in the JavaScript world, where people now see that we've explored the possibilities, and now we need to see integration. And interestingly enough, right now you see not just one, but several competing frameworks being launched within the course of about a month. And so this has been in the air for a while. This follows the principle of the adjacent possible, which is a sort of a theorization of how ideas happen, where all of the things that we know, you could consider as information that we keep in rooms. And these rooms have doors between each other. And all of the rooms that have information that we know or ideas that we've had have their lights on, but they all have doors to each other. And the adjacent possible is what lies in the rooms adjacent to the rooms that we currently have the lights on. And so when we open one of those doors to another room, we turn the light on and that idea has become possible, but only because we've had the ideas that are adjacent to it. And this is why you see things like calculus invented simultaneously in two different places in the world by two different people. That's because of the adjacent possible. And so the same thing is happening in the JavaScript world. The ideas are out there. It's time for those ideas to happen. And now you'll see several different expressions of those ideas. We've talked through what happens on the front end and what happens for the application developer. What about the hosting providers? How have the hosting providers changed and how has that changed application development? Well, when I started writing Ruby on Rails, getting your Ruby on Rails site on the internet in a production way was almost impossible. It was sad because you had Rails, which was amazing, revolutionary in what it offered. And yet getting it online was still really, really hard. And what you see now is something completely different. And it belongs to this greater notion that I've been chasing for a long time which is the idea that you have something like a universal deployment machine, which is something where you have your code, you write your code, and then you push it somewhere. Say you just commit and push to your Git repository. And then some system can pick that up and put it in production. And that's it. The developer does nothing, has no server maintenance. There are no other steps. It just happens. And you're starting to see providers today like Netlify, like Versal, I think these are probably the two leading companies in the sector. And all of this, of course, built on AWS or Google Cloud, or Microsoft Azure, et cetera. But these deployment machines, they're reaching a level where you just push to GitHub, it's picked up by one of these companies, and it's online. And that is a change that I think is going to unlock huge amounts of potential. And again, think about beginners, people that are just entering the world of web application development. When you add things like, oh, hey, so you want to build a production website and you want it to be able to scale automatically. So let me teach you about Kubernetes. At that point, I think you've lost. And don't get me wrong, Kubernetes is great, but Kubernetes is not great for people trying to build 
web applications. It's great for people like AWS or Google Cloud trying to build these massive infrastructural components that would then allow you to build something like a universal deployment machine on top of that. I don't think people like me with my application development hat on should ever have to think about Kubernetes or even where your servers are. You should maybe be able to pick geographic locations and say, my users are in Western Europe and the Americas and, you know, wherever they would happen to be. Or I'm in Australia and my population of consumers is strictly there. Or maybe you're a developer in Africa and you say, I don't care about North America or South America or Europe or even Asia. I want to serve my customers here and I want the experience to be awesome. And you could just say, I want great coverage in these countries in Africa. And the deployment machine would be able to optimize your production environment for that specification. And in this newer hosting world, what role do serverless functions play? I think they could play an even bigger role than they do today. I think we're at the beginning of what serverless functions can do. They're already awesome but they could be like triple mega awesome. If we remove some of the restrictions that they have, then I think serverless functions can literally be your business logic server. Like that becomes your server. You no longer have a server, right? In the true serverless fashion, you don't worry about a server, running a server, where that server is running if you don't want to. And all of your computation happens there. Now that's not possible for all levels of computation right now because of the limitations that AWS and other providers have on their cloud functions. But I think we can get there. I think we're on a road to getting there. And then that's beautiful. And that's really what Redwood JS is optimized for. It's optimized for you to say, I have a GraphQL client. I have a GraphQL server. On the server, I just want it to run wherever. I don't care. I want to put it in the cloud. And if you do that on serverless functions, then you can get geographic distribution very easily. You get automatic scaling up to whatever level you want geographically or otherwise. And that could be the fundamental building block. You could build all the pieces of computation on that if you wanted. Let's continue talking about these different pieces of web development. We will get to Redwood JS. How does GraphQL fit into the modern architecture of a full-stack JavaScript application? In my mind, it's you don't have to do it, right? You don't have to have GraphQL as an intermediary between a front and a back end. You could have a custom RPC protocol that you hide and do things transparently. And some of the Redwood competitors are doing that, and that's super interesting. But to me, the beauty of having GraphQL as the intermediary between your front end and your back end is twofold. Number one, it allows you out of the gate, if this is how you're thinking, if GraphQL is just an underpinning of how you think about building your full stack application, then you automatically get multi-client capabilities. And this is becoming more and more common in our world, right? You want to build a website today, but tomorrow you want to add a mobile client. And then maybe the day after that, you want to run this software in the command line and you want a command line client. And so instead of building the website, and this is how it happened in Rails today, you'd build a Rails website and you'd have your views and they'd be tightly coupled and that would be really easy. 
And then later on, you'd say, okay, I need my second client. And, you know, Rails is kind of, I can kind of make it be a RESTful API endpoint too. So I'm going to do that. And then you have a third client and you start to feel the limitations of REST. You want things to be more efficient, especially when it comes to mobile. And you start saying, I want to have GraphQL. So then you build a GraphQL API on top of your Rails app. And there's some decent software to do that. That's not horrible, but it's duplicating the effort that you've already made in your business logic. And it's also making it messier. And it's probably violating principles of isolation of who's responsible for what in your back end. And it's just more code to maintain. And so the way that I think about it is that GraphQL becomes the one and only mediator between your front end and your back end. And that your back end is literally just a GraphQL API. And if you think about it that way, then your website becomes a client for that. And your mobile app becomes a client for that. And your command line tool and the thing that you install on a kiosk at the mall and the app that you build for various automobiles that's going to show up on the dashboard. All of these things are just clients for the same GraphQL API, which allows you to focus all of your efforts into building a beautiful and functional and usable GraphQL API, not only for yourself, but should you want to open that up and make it a first-class citizen for other people to use and integrate your backend, then that's just natural. Then you can just do that. And then point number two is that I think it really enforces better design of your application because by decoupling your front end and your back end, you're forced to think about those boundaries and who's responsible for what. And when you build your front end with React, you get this really natural way of doing data fetching and the views become responsible for their own data. And they fetch that via GraphQL, which is very flexible, but also is easy to navigate. So for instance, when you have a new developer come in and they want to understand where the boundaries of the software are, all you have to do is say, here's a GraphQL API. You can see all the things that we do with the client and you can see exactly in the back end where all of those things begin and what code they call, and it becomes very traceable and instrumentable. Think about the logging that you have when you have a GraphQL API. You know everything that's happening in a very fine-grained way without having to sort of sift through the haystack of data that is a set of log lines around what web pages are being called and what code those things might execute. What about the database. Describe the ideal database for a Jamstack application. Well, I think an ideal database to me is going to be, it really depends. I'm going to fork this answer into two parts again. On one side, I really want a relational database. I want something that I can store my users in and information about them and settings and all of these kinds of things, anything that they need to own and correlate across different users. At the same time, I want probably a NoSQL database that I'm gonna use for document storage. That can be a very convenient way to store things that I'll never join across other records. And it's just really convenient. It can be very fast. It's easy to distribute. And so I probably want both eventually. And so it's hard to find any database that does both, but I think that's fine. I think each one you use for their best purpose. And then if you can get easy access to both of them, then you're 
code on your server side could be very clear about which data it's pulling from where and what is the key that correlates them one to the other. So I'll start there. And then I'll say the second point is that in my envisionment of how full stack application development can work, I talk about a concept I call edge ready edge or edge readiness. And that's the idea that eventually, and we're starting to get there, all of the pieces of your backend and front end can be distributed around the world. So for instance, in Redwood, I'm going to give you snippets of Redwood because this is just what's on my mind. This is how I think about these problems. In Redwood, for instance, you can put your front end client on a CDN because it's just a React application, fully statically deliverable. You can put that on CDN and deliver it on the edge. And with Lambda, you have the potential to distribute your business logic and put it also very near the edge. Now that's not gonna make a lot of sense unless your database is also distributed and put on the edge. At least you want read replicas placed near the edge. But if you can do that, and there are databases that can do that, not as many as I wish there were, but if you do all three of those parts and you can get each of them near the edge, then you have a fully distributed application, at least from a read perspective. Writes are more difficult, obviously. But that's a really powerful thing, the level of scale that that allows you. And right now it's very easy with a CDN to do the front end and with Lambda to do the business logic. The databases are the more difficult part. So my ideal database is built from scratch to be distributed, that that's just a core concept of how it works. And so you see things like FaunaDB that are really embracing serverless and embracing this idea. And I'm super excited to see where they go but it's non-relational. And so it has some limitations because of that. There are other companies like Yugabyte that is creating a distributed relational database solution that's Postgres compatible that is super interesting. And others have done this before, Cockroach. And so that's what I want. I want some relational, I want some NoSQL, and I want it distributed around the world. I need at least read slaves. And if I can get my writes distributed, then even better. Do you have any perspective on why those newer databases are, for the purposes of the average Jamstack application, why are those newer databases any different than Mongo? I'm not an expert to say exactly why they would be better. I actually think what has happened is somehow Fauna has inserted itself as the Jamstack database. <laughs> but for most people, I don't think it matters. Yeah, well, I think there's some interesting concepts that they have there and that mm. it was built for distribution from the very beginning. And the characteristics that you get from those distributed writes is very powerful. And again, mm. I haven't used a lot of those services directly. My life has been primarily in the relational world and we've made relational databases work extensively. And at GitHub, it was primarily that other than the Git storage itself that eventually went to a, a distributed hash table, essentially. We never really used a lot of NoSQL stuff. And so, again, my expertise is limited, but the advantages of having that type of NoSQL storage, I think are very powerful. But I, I'm not gonna be an expert to be able to, <laughs> to, to defend or rag upon any specific distributed NoSQL database at, at this time. Yeah, and I have uh, respect for all those distributed, consistent, globally consistent database systems and I'm just I try to do the differential between them and I 
not I guess I'm I'm not an expert in it. So yeah, I've heard very good things about Atlas, and so I have not used it myself. But I think there's again, it's there's a lot of power there, right? These are all tools that work for better or worse in different circumstances, and it's really nice to have options. Totally. So what about the build tooling in the average Jamstack application? Tell me about the state of build tooling. So the build is a really important phase for a lot of Jamstack applications. That's how you go from the code that you write to the generated code or the rendered HTML pages or whatever your strategy is. And it gives you a tremendous amount of power to turn your code into something else. And in Redwood, this happens a little bit differently than in what you would traditionally consider a Jamstack thing right now. So I'm sort of intentionally pushing the boundaries of what one might consider Jamstack. So Jamstack right now, for the most part, you're thinking of a content site that's going to have maybe a lot of articles and you might integrate with Stripe or Shopify or something to sell things, or you'll integrate with something like Algolia for search. And that's kind of the whole thing. Your database, you're not generally using a, a live database that you've created yourself for many of them. And that was sort of the appeal of the Jamstack to begin with was, don't worry about a production database. Use these third-party services. They'll do this for you and you stay more protected. You don't have to deal with it. It's the happy path. But the deployment methodology and the developer experience of the Jamstack to me is aspirational. And so bringing the full stack capabilities to the Jamstack experience is what I'm really chasing with Redwood. I'm sorry. Can you say the question again? I got deep into this answer and now I've forgotten where I started. No, no problem. I was talking about the build tools, but you know, we've talked around the contours of Redwood JS enough, and now I want to just get directly into it. So Redwood JS is a framework for building full stack Jamstack applications. The Jamstack itself, this began as a concept for building what were originally called static sites. Tell me about how the static site model grew to encompass full stack applications and, and how Redwood JS reflects that. Yeah, many years ago I wrote Jekyll, which was one of the very first static site generators. And that was awesome. And then we wrote GitHub pages to make it easy to put sites like that online by just pushing to GitHub repository. And I think that the kernel of that is very powerful. That concept of push to publish is kind of what we called it at the time. Push to your repository to publish to the internet. And that idea took a long time to really mature. But then services like Netlify came out and said, this is worth more than just doing for random personal blogs and open source project landing pages and said, what if you could have a production ready version of this? That I think really kicked off a lot of excitement in that space. And so once you do that, once you start saying, use these methodologies of pre-rendering pages, building them at build time and then pushing the result to the internet so that they're static getting back to the roots of how we all began this amazing web journey by just authoring static HTML pages and, and getting them online. That's really appealing because of the performance and the security that you get from that approach. So anytime you have building blocks, developers love to take those building blocks and then 
keep improving them and building things that you never even really imagined were possible with those bits. And then you get ideas from that and then you keep going. And so the Jamstack is no different than many instances of this journey. And it leads you to people now starting to say, well, why can we do this for content sites where we're pulling in articles and content from a CMS and then baking them into static pages and deploying those with a single push and getting them distributed on a CDN? Why can we do that, but not build full web apps that way and take advantage of a lot of those same characteristics while still increasing the advantages? Again, it's just pushing what's possible, opening those doors to the adjacent possible. And that's how we got here, right? It's just that realization that you can push to a Git repository, publish it online, and you have a build step. I don't know how much you've looked at the other prominent frameworks like Next.js, for example. Do you have any descriptions for why or how Redwood is different than Next.js or how it contrasts in opinion? Yeah, so Next.js is amazing. It's been around for quite a few years. It has a high degree of polish, and you can do really awesome things with it. It's really a great piece of software. For Redwood, there were a few things that I wanted to do differently. So routing, I wanted to be done in a different way. And just being able to have full control over that layer of the framework felt important to me that it wasn't going to be a battle between us and the Next.js authors and the things that they wanted to accomplish that might be different than what we wanted to accomplish in order to do that. So there was just things about how you do things, how code is structured, where you put your files. It wasn't even necessarily huge things. It was a kind of a, a larger collection of smaller things. And so I have no criticism of Next, really. It's more that I wanted Redwood to be its own thing. And we needed that level of control to, to free our minds in a way that we weren't just duplicating the principles of an existing framework, but that we could be unfettered and follow Redwood where it needed to go, especially from a developer experience perspective. And that's also why we're writing our own router, right? Which is a potentially stupid thing that, that one would do when you have such great routers also available. But Redwood has never totally been about using all of the pieces that are available. Although we do leverage a lot of the pieces that are available and that gives people a lot of comfort around how they build things. But if there are fundamental things that we want to chase around developer experience, then we will build our own version of it. And that means that Redwood will look a little bit different than Next. It's optimized specifically for full stack applications where Next really started as a proper jam stack sort of a thing and is optimized for that and has kind of grown from that. We're starting with the perspective that everything is integrated perfectly through this stack. So you assume that your front end and your back end are going to talk via GraphQL. You assume that your router is going to allow you to have these page files that are going to go in a certain place and be named a certain way and that you don't have to import them into the routes file because it's irritating and pointless. So there's all these little decisions that we think add up to a level of polish and integration that is going to be hard to duplicate with some of the existing frameworkish pieces that are out there. One piece of Redwood JS is the 
the cell concept. A cell is a declarative system for data fetching. Describe how a cell works. So a cell is an abstraction that allows you to do your data fetching in a more declarative fashion. So it's a common pattern in the React data fetching world. Say you're using Apollo, which is what we use for Redwood. And you have a front-end component, you have a React component, and it wants to do that fetching. So you're going to call Apollo, use query or something similar, and you're going to get out of that some variables. You'll get a loading Boolean, you'll get some data, you'll get some indication of whether it was a success or failure. And then you need to test each one of those things and then render the appropriate output for that case. And it ends up with looking very imperative and it's kind of messy and it's not super great to look at. And so we thought maybe we can do a little bit better. Maybe we can make this a little more declarative. And so in Redwood, if you use a cell, which is under the hoods, essentially just a higher order component that wraps a file that exports certain named constants. So for instance, you export a success constant that is a React component that's going to receive props that represent the data when a successful data fetch happened. And then in that React component, all you're thinking about is the success mode. What does this need to do when, when I have the data? So you just take the data and render it, just like you kind of want a React component to do. Similarly, if you export a loading component, then we'll call that for you during the loading state. And in that loading component, all you have to do is think about what should my component look like when it's loading? So it really cleans up the code a lot. It's not, I mean, it's a small amount of magic and it's really nothing particularly fancy, but I think it speaks more to our philosophy, how we think about things and how we really want to clean up the developer experience. And it also allows us to get into the data fetching flow in a way that will allow us to continue optimizing how data fetching works. So right now, one of the problems with GraphQL is what's called the waterfall problem in data fetching. And so that happens when you have some nested components. So let's say you have the outer component that is going to do some data fetching to get some user information from a user profile, for instance. And then within that component, you have nested a component that is going to say, pull a list of their blog posts or something, some activity that they have. And it's gonna list those on that same page. Now it's, it needs to do its own data fetching, right? So we have a pattern where components are responsible for their own data fetching and each has their loading state. So as you load the page, you get kind of the outer frame and then the inner components will fetch their data and then render. But when you have these components nested, then the inner components rely on the outer components finishing their renders before those inner components will be called. And so this is the waterfall problem where each data fetch has to wait until the previous data fetch completed, which is not awesome. If those two things didn't need to wait, let's say each of them only required the user ID to run, why are you waiting for that outer fetch to happen before that inner fetch runs? And so we think that by getting into the data flow in a way that a cell does, from a framework perspective, we can do some optimizing for you without you ever having to think about it. So maybe we can batch those 
queries up and run them simultaneously by doing some static analysis on the GraphQL queries and then injecting the right things into, into the right places during the build step. And that's totally transparent to you. And that happens because of some of these abstractions that we put into place. And how does a Redwood application use GraphQL? I know Prisma is integrated into the stack as well. Describe what what role GraphQL plays. GraphQL is how the front end talks to the back end. So a Redwood JS application right now, out of the box, ships with two sides, we call them. Ships with the API side and the web side. The web side is a React client, a React-based client. And the API side is an implementation of a GraphQL server. And that ends up being deployed. If you deployed it something like Netlify, it'll deploy it for you onto AWS Lambdas. And GraphQL is how the front end talks to the back end. So you do this data fetching, you make a GraphQL call, you get all the characteristics and ease of use of GraphQL. And on the back end, you're just building out a GraphQL API. So these things are all well known, how we do these things, still evolving. Best practices especially are, are still evolving. But you have the advantage of all of the tooling that has been built and will continue to be built around GraphQL to continue improving the experience over time. And so that's where GraphQL fits in. And then I think there was a second part of that question you had as well. Well, I, I was wondering about Prisma. Right. So Prisma is the query builder. They call it a query builder more than an ORM because it's not really producing objects. It's more producing just a plain old Ruby object data structure of the content that you're pulling out of the database. So we'll call it query builder. So GraphQL and Prisma don't, in our implementation, don't really interact. This is Prisma 2, which is a different approach than they took from the Prisma 1 stuff. So we should be clear about that. Prisma 2 is specifically a query builder. And right now they support a couple of relational databases, but the idea is that long-term they will support many different databases, including things like Mongo and Fauna and other NoSQL databases. So you'll have the same interface potentially to both your relational and non-relational database, all from the same Prisma client. And so GraphQL and Prisma don't really interact, but I will speak to how you build out the backend of a Redwood JS application, because I think it has some interesting bits to it. So if you've ever built out a GraphQL API in JavaScript using something like Apollo, it's a pretty common pattern that you define your, you'll have your GraphQL SDL, the schema definition language that you'll write that represents the definition of the API. And then you'll have resolvers that you write that will map the functions that need to be called to the SDL definitions. And then you need to build out what's in those resolvers. And so the problem with this is that it's it ends up kind of messy. I mean, even doing simple things like merging together your SDL schemas, if you want to split it into multiple files, if you want to do that yourself, you're going to spend like a day trying to figure out how to do that. So in Redwood, that's just out of the box. It's all configured for you. All you do is write these SDL.js files that contain your SDL definition that's exported as a const. And then we're going to automatically map that to another file that we call a service file that is going to represent the implementation of that chunk of your GraphQL API. But the interesting bit 
is that it's done in a way that makes that code reusable from other parts of your backend. So I'll explain how that works. So if you have a query called posts, for instance, then in your services file, we will look for a function that you export called posts. And that function's gonna take only the parameters, the arguments that are needed to make that run, of which there might not be any. But this is not how the resolvers generally work. They're gonna get the root element of your GraphQL call. They're gonna get the arguments. They're also gonna get the parent in case you have a nested field. And then they're gonna get an info object that represents other context around the call. The problem with this is that if you write your code this way directly in a resolver file, for instance, this code becomes essentially impossible to reuse from elsewhere. And when you're building out your business logic, it would be really nice to think about your business logic as another layer of the API. So you have kind of an internal API. And so we really liked that idea that your services would be an internal API that you can use from one service to call into another service. And in doing this, you start thinking about your backend as a set of services that are well-defined. And this, is, this all goes towards the question of maintainability in software. And from my experience, building large complex systems always comes down to maintainability. Once you get three or four or five or 10 years in, all of your fanciness is forgotten and the only thing you ever wished that you did was focus more on maintainable code. And so out of the box, Redwood is trying to encourage you into best practices around isolating different parts of your backend code to sort of keep you safe when it comes to continued development. And so these service files are built in a way that they'll get automatically picked up by the GraphQL server because those functions get automatically mapped. So you just have to export functions that are named in the right way. And we will then inject as a global variable the context that you need to use them. So you get the database that you can use in any of them as a top level item. You actually import that explicitly. But then you also get access to context as essentially a global variable in those services files so that you're not having to have it passed to you. And that means that you can call those functions so let's say you want to get a list of posts from somewhere else in your application. Well, now all you have to do is call into that services file and call that posts function and you pass it maybe the some filter statement. And now it's going to it's just going to work. It's going to work the normal way that you would call JavaScript code. But the beauty is that that same function is being picked up by the GraphQL server and also being used as the implementation of your GraphQL API. Right. And you know, you've talked through a lot of the different nomenclature that I wanted to get to, services and routing. When I create a new Redwood application from scratch, what exactly is happening? Like, And where is it getting associated with a GitHub repo? Is it getting associated with any backend hosting? Because like, that's one of the things that I think that is different from the Ruby on Rails generation and this generation is this generation is a little more aware of certain third-party proprietary services that are nonetheless really important, like things like GitHub and Netlify. So does it, when I create a new Redwood application, is it integrating with any of these services right off the bat? It can. It's available. You don't have to. We want to try to be as agnostic as possible while still offering 
really a high degree of integration. So if you spin up a new Redwood project, you just, you type from yarn, you just type yarn create Redwood at dash app and then give it a name. That'll pull down the latest skeleton of what a Redwood app looks like and then do some post-processing on it. And then you have a Redwood app that is essentially ready to run and you spin it up and you'll get a placeholder that says you need to add a route to add a, a homepage, whatever. But we don't force you to use Git. We don't create and commit to a Git repository for you, which we could and we discussed doing, but it felt like a little bit of overreach. You know, not everyone is a Git user. And it's easy enough for you to, you know, init a Git repository and do your first commit, right? Like it's not a huge burden. But once you're there, then you're automatically set up for a Netlify deploy. I mean, you'll have to plug in a certain thing into your redwood.toml file to deploy it. But out of the box, it's ready to deploy. You'll have to set up your own database right now because the database side of this universal deployment machine kind of idea that I'm working towards is not yet fully complete. Eventually, I would love for Netlify to be able to spin up a database for you and you're just, you're done, right? You just, you create your Netlify project, you link it to your GitHub repository, you push to it, you specified what database you want and some of its characteristics, and then Netlify just does it for you and manages it for you the same way that they do your lambdas. And I think that's the type of integration that we want and not just with Netlify. We would love to support every vendor. And so we're building out that right now, actually, and we're doing it in a plugin architecture so that we'll build our deployment strategies as plugins and then other people can do the same, or you can write your own. If you have a, a custom thing that you do with your own servers and, and you want to do it in a special way, then you'll just write your own sort of plugin and put it in your repository or reference it from a package on NPM. And then you're ready to go, right? So we aim for flexibility when you want it, but easy out of the box, just push it and forget if that's what you want. All right. Well, we could talk a lot more about Redwood, but I've got a lot of broader ecosystem questions. And one is something that I've been asking other people about also, the intersection of low-code and Jamstack. So I think of Jamstack as a very high-level, but nonetheless programming system. And I think of the low-code as fairly low-level, but accessible to a general interest person. Do you see some kind of intersection or merging between the low-code ecosystem and the Jamstack? I think there's opportunities there. You already see a desire for that, I think, from the use of CMSs, where we many of us run into this, where we have this great website, and it's it's beautiful and perfect, and it's all in GitHub. And then your marketing team says, hey, can we change this title on this page? And you're like, oh, yeah, no problem. All right, I'm going to get you a GitHub account. And um, you just go to this page and, and look, you can even change it online. And, and then it'll come, you know, it'll issue a pull request and I can review it. And like, it's just not the type of experience that most people want. Like you can make it work, but most people don't want it to work that way, right? Like you want a CMS experience. You want to be able to go in there and say, oh, I, here's the text. I'm going to edit it. Oh, and maybe I can drag and drop around some images or whatever I need to do in a more graphical way. And then I hit save and maybe it even has a review process. And then it's going to go live on the site and I don't have to worry about 
screwing up the HTML of the page because that's terrifying. And I think the same desire is true of other parts of how this stuff comes together. So that's great for content, for specific content on specific pages. But what if you want all new types of pages or you want to integrate with some other third-party service? I think a lot of these things can be abstracted up a level to where the user doesn't have to be a developer. And it's producing code underneath, just like the CMS that's pulling in external data for an article or a landing page is at the end of the day, just injecting that text and other stuff into an HTML page. You could think of a lot of these low or even no code things as helping people that aren't developers do things that they were never able to do before. And at the same time, helping developers do the things that they would normally open a text editor to do, accomplish things more quickly without having to write code. I mean, developers like to write code. So this is not necessarily, I think a lot of these things are more to democratize the building of websites than it is for preventing coders from opening text editors. Do you think there will be a GitHub equivalent for low-code applications? Mm, let me think about that. How do you mean exactly? You know, like I make my low-code marketplace thing and I host it on, you know, low-code hub and people can <laughs> fork it or make their own marketplace things. I think it depends on how many of these different things there are and how do they, how do you use them? Because a lot of these things want to be web applications. And so what does it mean to host a web application on a, on something like GitHub, right? Like, how are you envisioning that these things would be run exactly? Like, is this, I guess, is the developer spinning them up and running these things, but that sort of defeats the purpose. Like you kind of want them already running and then it's just like a direct, then your idea is just a directory with links to services. Right, right, right. So I'm not sure. Yeah, fair enough. How will the role of GitHub in software development change in the next five years? I think GitHub continues to dig into extending its capabilities around the life cycle of development. So you start to see things like the ability to do builds on GitHub's now, GitHub Actions. That's one instance of a, taking this concept that's out in the world already and abstracting it up a level and then making it useful for more things than you thought, right? So you could replicate a CI system with GitHub Actions. This is always how we've thought at GitHub. It's always been about taking these ideas and pulling them up a level of abstraction to make them more generically useful across different ecosystems. So I'll give you an instance of this as it played out in the earlier days of GitHub. So a lot of the early users on GitHub were Ruby and Ruby on Rails developers. And so we had the opportunity to be a package manager. We were like, if people put their Ruby gems on GitHub, then we could, like, technically, it's possible that we could just grab those and become a package repository in addition to rubygems.org. And people could install those and they could install like anything. You wouldn't have to ever put it on any other 
package manager if you didn't want to. We could just be a package manager, right? You just install directly from GitHub. That would be cool, right? So this was a case of a thing where we're like, we can do this, so we should do this. And so we did it and it was kind of cool. And then people started wondering like, okay, why did you just do this for Ruby? Like, are you guys just hosting Ruby projects? Like I thought that you were more than that, but I, you know, I guess if you're just hosting Ruby projects, then I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm a Python person. I don't, do I belong here? And so we, there were some other problems with it. Like it had some, there were some things that were, that were a little bit weird in how you had to use it and how you had to specify what the package was. And so we sat down and we thought about it and we decided to shut it down. And it was specifically because the idea, that idea of a package manager wasn't abstracted up high enough. It wasn't that we were now a package manager for everything. It was that we were just a package manager for Ruby stuff. And so we didn't want to be a niche player. We didn't want to be just Ruby hosting. We wanted to be hosting for everything. And that meant not endorsing any specific language in that way. And so we pulled back from that. And then from then that became the strategy. I say with great irony now that they just bought NPM, I guess, but (laughs) (laughs) I think that's more of a service to the developer community than anything else at this point. But I think in general, that's how it goes. It's like, come up with these great ideas for what people are already trying to do, but do it in a way that allows them to build even more on top of that than what you thought you could do. All right. If you are not working on Redwood JS, by the way, I know you work on a lot of different projects at the same time, but if you were not focused on Redwood, what would you be working on? Do you have any other ideas brewing just in your head or things that you've started to tinker on? Sure. I have plenty of ideas. So one thing that we do currently, I mean, I can answer this as there are other things that I'm doing. I mean, I'm running another startup called Chatterbug that's for foreign language learning. Check that out, chatterbug.com. So I'm doing that. I'm also running, helping to run with my wife, what we call Preston Warner Ventures, which is our sort of investment firm, if you will. So we do angel investments. We do a lot of nonprofit grants around family planning and women's health around the world internationally. We also have a program that's part of Preston Warner Ventures called Hypothesis, which is a place where we fund projects that we wish existed, but don't necessarily have enough time ourselves to work on. And so Redwood is actually one of these Hypothesis projects, even though I actually do work on it, but I have hired several other people to work on it with me. And so we have a core team of four people, three of which essentially are working full-time. And then I act mainly as sort of project manager around it, but then do coding when I have time of which, you know, during COVID-19 times, I have three kids. And so I have no time, but I mean, there's lots of ideas. I have ideas for a VR space racing game. I want to fund the creation of a book or an online tool slash visualization thing slash, you know, written material around learning quantum physics. If you only have a algebra background. So like, what does it actually take to understand the mathematics of quantum physics? Take me there. All I know is algebra. Teach me only the math that I need to know in order to fully grok the mathematics behind quantum physics. I've never seen that. 
So that's something that I want to fund. I would love to also work on or fund. This is the way that I work on things these days, right? When you have limited time, but the ability to invest in things, then the way that you work on things is by helping other people work on them. And so another thing I would love is more of an official work on homelessness in San Francisco. Like, why is that such a persistent problem? What are the drivers? Where is the money going in San Francisco? We put a lot of money into this problem and we don't see a lot of solutions out the other end. So just help me, you know, erase my ignorance. You know, I would love to fund that, but I'm stretched pretty thin right now. I mean, I'm getting into to climate change action as well. We'll be funding some efforts around climate change. And so I've been doing a lot of reading around that. I love the technology of the energy industry. How can we do better? How do we build out a grid that can support wind and solar as a bigger part of our energy production? Will I get into the energy industry someday? Not impossible. It's in my mind. Cool. All right, Tom. Well, it's been really great talking and thanks for making GitHub. Like it's been very influential on my life. So thank you for all your work. Well, you're welcome. I love doing it. I love building products that make people's lives easier. I love building developer tools and making it easier for people to learn stuff. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Well, thank you, Tom. All right. Thank you so much.